Cameron. We're going to talk into the mic. In 2021, Nashville kicked the uh, into the mic and scored a go. Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast. Three voices on tonight. Four if you count John Freeman. But of course, I'm Wes Bowling, Nashville SC radio analyst. And I'm Tim Sullivan, the owner of PubCountryUSA.com. And the voice you heard to open the show was not the voice of John Freeman or Tony Husband or the usual highlights that we play. It was Cameron Bowling, future NSC Academy tryout participant. <laughs> it's, that's way better than if, if we got Lily Sullivan who would say, ugh, soccer, which she constantly <laughs> says. Well, Cameron's too young. He can still be manipulated into liking whatever we like, and that's going to change very soon. So I'm enjoying it uh, enjoying it while I can. Uh, speaking <laughs> of things that I actually really do enjoy, Moon Taxi, tremendous music, as always, opening the show, and they'll close us out. Tim, we have an MLS Cup matchup. Indeed, it's going to be uh, an exciting one, and obviously the way that it played out over the weekend in the semifinals is going to be something that NSC fans are just kicking themselves over, too. Yeah, there are a lot of boys wearing gold that were on the golf course that would have loved to have been playing and uh, instead of a bunch of Philly players who were sitting on their couches wishing they were playing, uh, as health and safety <laughs> protocols took basically most of the starting 11, including keeper mm-hmm. Andre Blake. Uh, we'll talk more about that in our outside-in segment. Also, we have a new MLS Reserve League. How will that affect Nashville? More on that here in a little bit. And a great interview for you today. We already teased it. It'll be John Freeman, uh, the retired voice of Nashville SC. He's moved on to the University of Virginia, his alma mater near his hometown. And uh, he's calling football and basketball for, for the University of Virginia. But he stopped by to recap the season, to recap his tenure uh, on the mic for the boys in gold. And finally, we do not yet have Nashville's postseason roster decisions. At the time of recording, 22 of the 27 clubs have announced theirs. Nashville is not one of those, but Tim, we should have them soon. Yeah, I think we're expecting them by the end of the week at this point, which is probably frustratingly a long time from now. You did mention that most clubs, um, except for the two that uh, are not required to have them out yet because they're playing an MLS Cup this weekend, that'd be all but a couple other ones uh, aside from Nashville SC. So it's a little bit frustrating, but it's a long offseason. We're going to have so much time to break down these roster decisions before it really becomes necessary to start not only shifting towards the end of this season, but looking forward to getting ready for next season. And so it turns this episode into another hybrid episode, if you will. We'll do a lot of looking back in the early shout. We will walk through the superlatives from the 2021 season, both for and against the boys in gold. And we will have that interview with John Freeman. You talk about looking back. He has so many memories. He's been such a fixture for this club. And uh, his voice has been the soundtrack to many great moments for Nashville SC. And so we talk a lot about that as well as where he's headed at Virginia and uh, how he'll be following Nashville SC moving forward. Stay tuned for a whole lot of good Gary Smith content, by the way. Some tremendous stories about what it's like to work with Gary behind the scenes. And I can corroborate a lot of what he has to say uh, on that one. In the mailbag, we'll walk through Nashville's offseason wish list, plus what to do with Ake Loba to maximize his potential for this club. Where will he fit positionally next year? Plus, can you make a case for Nashville staying in the West where they'll be moving next year. Could that be a longer-term move, and why should or shouldn't it be? And we'll go outside in and discuss results elsewhere in the playoffs, of course, breaking down that MLS Cup matchup taking place on the 11th. And there's a new league. We're going to talk about that, Major League Soccer, expanding into the third tier. What does it mean for Nashville? What might it mean for USL? And uh, in the final whistle, we'll discuss off-season content that you should take in as you await as we do, for February to come around and the next season of Major League Soccer. So let's head to our early shout. It was always odds against Philadelphia. 
that after seven seasons of their existence, a first trophy for New York City FC. One final action, and that's it. The Portland Timbers have won the Western Conference Championship, and they will host MLS Cup. That montage of highlights, courtesy of John Champion of ESPN and friend of the podcast, John Strong of FS1. And uh, Tim, it's going to be a battle of four seats for MLS Cup. Yeah, during our playoff preview episode, I kind of compared the Timbers to last year's Columbus crew team. They were outperforming mediocre advanced numbers during the course of the regular season. And maybe they they weren't as good in the run of play as the, t- the table showed at the end of the regular season. But now Portland is on the verge of something else that Columbus pulled off last year, which is getting hot at the right time and maybe catching a, a couple lucky breaks, especially the, for the Timbers this year, more so than Columbus last year. And they're riding it all the way to MLS Cup. Is New York City the one playoff team that Nashville supporters probably least wanted to see advance to MLS Cup? It could be. There's there's a little bit of a villain status with Tati Castellano, so a little tease of a villain status in our mailbag section later. But um, it's a team that, unfortunately, is kind of the opposite of Portland. They were a team that was really good over the course of the year and were struck by bad luck. So maybe Portland has some special sauce that that causes them to, to have opponents underachieve their expected goals, and maybe New York City has some uh anti-special <laughs> some lacking special sauce that that makes them uh, underachieve and helps their opponents overachieve it is actually is a really interesting matchup between one of the luckiest teams and one of the unluckiest teams in the league maybe they'll have the mediocre sauce like cold ketchup, <laughs> cold ketchup to me by the way very mediocre all ketchup should be room temperature that's that's my no. opinion i'm a i'm a pan ketchup believer so oh yeah anything anything tomato is gonna catch your attention huh <laughs> Uh, well, before we get into MLS Cup, let's look back at Nashville's 2021. We got a great question from Nate a couple of weeks ago, and we flagged it at the time and thought it'd be good off-season content. And this is proof that sometimes we do circle back to mailbag questions and follow up. So keep sending yours in, and if we don't get to them in a given episode, uh, we will we will forward that to uh, to a later date. Nate asks for some superlatives from opposing teams against Nashville SC in 2021. Now, we're not going to limit it to that because we need to celebrate what happened for Nashville SC as well. So in Gold Nugget style, let's do both. Let's celebrate Nashville's superlatives and the superlatives that happened against the boys in gold. We have named each of these awards, of course, because it would be a waste of an opportunity not to. And so first, we will lead off with the Bolu Akinyode Memorial Goal of the Year. Should we get into the history lesson of why it's named after Bolu? Maybe for those uh, who are yeah, not. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, the uh, the stoppage time winner was dramatic and impressive, and I think both of us are kind of going for that in our in our choices here. But that's what it is. The stoppage time game, Bolu Akinyode goes barred down with the left foot against Cincinnati, and it's uh, the, the combination of the aesthetically pleasing and the, the stakes of the moment uh, have combined to make him the, the title man of, of this award. Dramatic and impressive. I have been accused of being one of those two things in my life. <laughs> so, Tim, who is your winner of the, or what is your winner of the Bolo Akinyori Memorial Goal of the Year for Nashville SC? I can't believe nobody's ever called you dramatic, Wes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love an underdog story, and Luke Hawkinson coming in and, and providing crucial, crucial contributions is definitely one of those. Um, the win against Toronto FC, he scored twice. After the 83rd minute, the second one was the more aesthetically pleasing one, and it was the one that ended up deciding the game in favor of Nashville SC rather than settling for a draw. So that is my winner for the single best goal of the year. 
It's a great one. It, the Luke goal, I think, one of the more dramatic moments and more dramatic matches uh, in the midst of that five-game homestand that, that really drove things forward for the club. Uh, really set the tone for the rest of the year. I'll go a little later in the season. I'll go with uh, with Hani's second goal against Orlando in the playoffs, both for skill and for stakes. I don't think you're going to find a more impressive goal in combination with CJ Sapong, the two-on-six. And also, it was so representative, Tim, of so many goals Nashville scored this year. On the counterattack, those two teaming up with Hani ultimately finishing. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to top that one in terms of, of just the style and, and the way it came about. But yeah, Luke coming in with the with the late brace against Toronto. That is a moment, I think, when you look back at the regular season that's going to stick with Nashville SC supporters for, for a really long time. Uh, what about opponents? Uh, a low point. The opposing goal of the year. I'm going to go with Fabio. He scored twice against Nashville SC, but in the first meeting to open the scoring in New York, that was Nashville's first loss of the season up at Red Bull Arena. And it was a, a volley off a free kick that he just placed beautifully. It was a banger. So in terms of quality, it was it was rich, but also, again, it, it led to Nashville SC's first loss of the season, and so it was significant in that respect. So I'll give my vote to uh, not the long-haired Fabio that was a model, <laughs> um, but to the one who plays for New York Red Bulls. And we've got to have some of the most uh, Fabio the model, the goose-faced one <laughs> uh, content of any soccer podcast out there. But uh, my so. choice... My choice also comes from early in the year, and it was uh, the the second game of the year, I believe, if I recall correctly. Mason Toys outside the box curler from the first uh, Montreal game. Uh, from the top of the box, curls one in the upper corner. Nothing Joe Wills could do about it. Again, for me, it's, it's that aesthetically pleasing uh, situation that really makes it so important because it, it did end up just being the first goal in what was ultimately a 2-2 draw, but just the way it looked, the way it felt for Nashville at the time was so significant. It was massive, and you know it, it continued Nashville's woes early in the season of wondering, like, like will we be able to get on the front foot? Will we be able to start a, a match well? Uh, and boy, they, they struggled throughout the year uh, in that respect, mm-hmm. but again, came back uh, one of two times they came back to draw Montreal at home this season. Uh, yeah, that was that was a stunner. That was a stunner. And Mason Toy didn't have the year he wanted to have because of health issues. But boy, was that a highlight for him as that was his second goal in the first two matches of the season for, for that Montreal team. All right, let's move on to result of the year. And it's going to be named after Gary Smith because one local podcast has told me repeatedly that he led Nashville SC to the MLS record for draws in a season. I don't know which podcast that was, but we've heard that rumbling around here. Uh, So we'll give it to him because uh, the wins plus the draws equals pretty impressive record for a team that lost the fewest matches in MLS this year, tied for the record in that as well. What's your result of the year for Nashville? Yeah, for me, it it was the 6-3 win against FC Cincinnati. And that's not because it's difficult to put up a touchdown on on FC Cincinnati. I feel like there are some some pretty talented high school teams out there that might be able to do it. Uh, I say in jest, of course, to to our friends. Uh, down on the Ohio River, but um, the the way it felt at the time with Nashville going down two nothing, almost going down three nothing with a penalty kick that Joe Willis ultimately saved that that really changed the course of that game. And then to come back and for pretty much the entire second half to just feel like a cruise was a pretty exciting result for Nashville. And it came at a time of the year when that win was so important in terms of keeping pace at the top of the Eastern Conference table. Yeah, and you know it was it was borderline disaster for this national mm-hmm. team going mm-hmm. down three one, even going down two zero, and they come back and get the one goal, and you're like, ah, down two one, plenty of time. The third goal was really alarming. Dave Romney with an uncharacteristic mistake, Dan Lovitz made one, and yeah, it was concerning. And then Cincinnati became 
Cincinnati and the world <laughs> righted itself and the world was no longer turned upside down. Uh, I think that was a huge result. Uh, I'll go with the first win of the year, which was against New England. Uh, 2-0 home win over the Revs. We didn't know what this New England team was going to become, although we saw, of course, potential right. for them to be strong. Uh, but the 2-0 win, really, Tim, too, it wasn't just nicking a couple of goals at home. It was a pretty dominant performance, a New England team that really couldn't figure out this Nashville group. Gary Smith clearly outcoached the uh, ultimate coach of the year uh, in those 90 minutes, Bruce Arena, and uh, got a result that, that springboarded it. First win of the season against the best team in the league. Yeah, it's, it's worth noting that the best team in MLS history to date and the worst team in MLS history, second one being a little bit more subjective, both made both made that category for us. <laughs> That's right. That's true. It's funny. Uh, the uh, the result of the year against Nashville SC, we'll give it to uh, to Jim Curtin. He's he's the not the recipient necessarily, but he's the the honoree of the name, the Jim Curtin result of the year, because of course Philadelphia beat Nashville twice, knocked him out of the playoffs. Uh, don't need to remind you guys of that. I will say the result of the year against Nashville, with apologies to the ultimate decisive Philadelphia win, I think it was New York Red Bulls against Nashville on decision day. Uh, this is a Red Bulls group that knew they had to at least get a draw to survive, and they did uh, against a Nashville team that, of course, was unbeaten at home and, and tough to beat there. But going ahead early, the earliest goal scored against Nashville in club history, once again, of course, it was Fabio, um, he of the goose face himself. <laughs> Uh, with the goal, I think the way they confidently came into him, a Red Bulls group that is young, that is a budget group compared to what what they you know expect up in New York, and they've really kind of taken an interesting turn in recent years. But they didn't look faced against Nashville. They came in, they got the early goal, they looked confident throughout, and uh, you know a couple of moments away from from winning that one against Nashville too. I think that was an impressive result. Yeah, for me, it's it's not what the the win meant for the team that that got it. It's it's what it meant for Nashville to not get the win or to not mm. get the draw, and that's the two one loss in Miami. Nashville SC flubs a chance. Shonda Cotty's decides to try to first time it instead of bringing the ball down and, and hitting it cleanly into the back of the net. Miami almost immediately counters and, and gets the winner. It could have been a two one win the other way. Uh, a three point swing ultimately, when you look at where Nashville ended up in the table, meant a ton. Uh, it probably meant that Nashville is not playing for MLS cup this weekend. When you look at how close the margins were in that Philadelphia game that Nashville ultimately was uh, booted from the playoffs in. And that's something that um, it, the, the, you didn't know it at the time, but mm -hmm. the way that it has impacted Nashville season and the way that it felt just Nashville was riding pretty high. They were on a big road trip, but were getting the, the draws that they were looking for. And then all of a sudden for that to kind of change the paradigm really kind of instilled a, a bit of doubt in this team. And fortunately they managed to rebound and finish strong, but it was it was huge at the time, and I think it has proven to be pretty significant over the course of the year too. Well, and as we learn more about Miami, and you colored in, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, between the lines there a little bit. I mean, this is a team that Nashville went down and beat five one just a few weeks yeah. after that. So yeah, you you really wonder what might have been, and I think you can very easily draw the chain, right? You, you get even a point against Miami there. You're swapping second and third place with Philadelphia. You're hosting mm -hmm. Philly in the conference semis. Much better chance of, of winning in that case. And then, who knows, uh, hosting NYCFC uh, the next week. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of what-ifs this season. There will be for any team, but that is certainly one that will ring loud and clear. I think it's a that's a great one, and you can trace it really just to one play more than anything else. Uh, how about the, the MVIP, the Most Valuable Invisible Player? 
for Nashville SC. So a player who's not going to get heralded as loudly as others, a player who maybe isn't getting national attention, although your your choice finally is getting some after years of being unheralded and, and a year and a half of being that in Nashville. We're going to name this one after Matt LaGrasa. We do know that Matt LaGrasa will no longer be with the boys in gold. He made that news public himself, but he has been a stalwart for this club for four seasons, too, in USL being unheralded and effective in playing the vast majority of those matches, almost every one, and then two years in Major League Soccer. So shout out to Matt, a tremendous guy who will be missed in Nashville on and off the pitch, and we will name the most valuable invisible player, and that's a compliment uh, after him. Yeah, my, my winner, you kind of alluded to it here, is Joe Willis. He gets some accolades from Nashville SC fans, and um, it's just probably not the amount that he deserves. He's such a key player for this team, and you don't really realize it because the defense puts him in positions where he doesn't have to make a ton of tough saves. Um, that was maybe a little bit different this year, particularly on set pieces. Those guys get a lot of credit. Walker Zimmerman is now the two time uh, MLS defender of the year. Joe Willis is not ever going to get the credit because he has a guy like Walker Zimmerman in front of him. And for that reason, he, he, I think fits the invisibility criterion, even though it's, it's maybe a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm kind of maybe playing liberally with language here. No, it's fine. I mean, I think he has he's grandfathered into being called invisible, even though he's nominated for goalkeeper of the year this year. I will say this. Everything you just said is completely valid and true and awesome. But with Walker winning defender of the year for the second straight year, with Willis being nominated for goalkeeper of the year, does that suggest what we probably already suspect, which is that Hani's not going to win MVP because people are still viewing Nashville as a defensively driven club rather than Hani as a player who's really turned Nashville from good to great? I don't think it really affects it necessarily. If, if anything, it says, oh, these two these two guys indicate that Nashville is a defensively oriented team. And Hani still did this. Sure. That said, uh, we've we've long maintained on this podcast that Hani is not winning MVP. New England's Carlos Heel is winning MVP, potentially in a ceremony that has been announced at Gillette Stadium for Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> so we'll, we'll <laughs> see if that's exactly what that ceremony is for. People will probably know by the time that they listen to this podcast whether or not that's what it was. But... I do think that it, it it could almost be a selling point for Honey to say, look, on a defensive team, I still put up these numbers. But nevertheless, you know, I don't think you or I <laughs> believes that that's going to happen. Speaking of guys who put up numbers, the Daryl DK Most Viable Opposing Player Award, the MVOP, and I'm going to just totally give you a spoiler. We named it after Daryl DK, and he's my winner. Three goals scored against <laughs> Nashville SC in three meetings. It's not <laughs> cheating. I... I Pick the category. I get to pick the winner. Right? <laughs> Not cheating. It's creating. Yeah, sure. Um, three goals in three matches against Nashville SC. He scores against the boys in gold every 84 minutes. He's faced them six times. He scored six goals. To give you an idea of how good that is, scoring against Nashville every 84 minutes as an individual, opponents scored against Nashville this season just once every 93. So Daryl DK beating the ratio of Nashville SC opponents this season per match. He's he's been elite against the boys in gold, better against Nashville than anybody else, and I can think of nobody more deserving for the most valuable opposing player award. After all, it's it's even named after him. <laughs> and you didn't even mention um, badass mummy celebrations. He has two. Every single Love other Nashville opponent combined has zero. So <laughs> um, he is he's a deserving choice. He might have been my choice if I were not trying to consciously avoid embracing consensus here. But mine, I think, is. <laughs> is a very justifiable one as well. And that's Andre Blake, the Philadelphia Union goalkeeper, uh, allowed just two goals in three games against Nashville this year. And he made two saves in a playoff uh, draw against Nashville SC. 
and then made two in the shootout that decided who got to advance to the Eastern Conference final. This is a guy who um, kind of went underappreciated this year. Matt Turner won the uh, goalkeeper of the year award largely because he was so good last year and, and Blake won it over him instead. Um, so I think that that this this year was kind of a uh, almost the opposite happened that Blake maybe should have deserved it or mm-hmm. should have earned it. And um, he, there were no games more dem- uh, demonstrative of that fact than the fact that that he performed the way he did against Nashville SC, which was one of the, t- the most potent attacks in this league. Once upon a time, Nashville SC played in a baseball park and 53 steps across the street from that baseball park was a lovely land called Von Elrod's. Both the baseball park and Von Elrod's, by the way, still there. But uh, Von Elrod's the site of many special off-field moments for Nashville SC supporters who are around in those those formative years of this professional soccer club. And so Von Elrod's off-field moment of the year. They are the they're the namesake of that award. What do you think? Best off-field moment this year for Nashville SC. So first of all, yeah, you've already you've already named an award after Matt Lagrassa. If we're talking about Von Elrod's, I have to give a quick shout out to his parents, Bob and Terry. Some some good times were had at Von Elrod's with <laughs> with the Lagrassas, but <laughs> but my off field moment of the year is the fan salute after the final regular season game mm-hmm. that draw that you already mentioned against New York Red Bulls. Um, I think Nashville SC some sometimes unfairly, pretty much always unfairly gets um, criticized by some fans for for not being appreciative enough of what they bring at home games at away games, and this is a club that hears some of that stuff and and they really wanted to make sure hey. We know how important you are to us. We know that you are a big part of why we went undefeated at home. And for them to have a, a solid way to, to demonstrate that is something that I think shows that this club is, is first of all, paying attention and, and secondly, smart enough to know how to show what they want to show when they need to show it. It was special to see club and supporters really grow together and realize that they worked hand in hand to turn Nissan Stadium into a fortress this year. Uh, to that end, uh, I think my highlight was, and I think the club posted this video, but uh, Walker walking up to a to a fan after the Orlando playoff win, who was, you know, reached out and, and was you know saying great things to Walker, and he took his his jersey off and handed it to her. And you see similar actions throughout the course of a season. Every club's going to have special moments like those with the supporters. Every player, you know, worth his salt is going to think about doing something nice, but. But again, combining the importance of that moment with the reaction of that fan afterward and, and how thrilled she was to receive that uh, that action, I think it speaks to the fact that even a defender of the year who has you know bigger fish to fry understands that really he doesn't and really he's doing this because um, he wants to perform for the folks at Nissan Stadium. And uh, I think that was a special moment that capped a really, really awesome, awesome night and awesome season for Nashville SC. Well, with that, that will cap our superlatives, but we are interested in yours as well. So reach out to us on Twitter as you listen to this and give us your award winners for, again, the Bolu Akinyoti Memorial Goal of the Year, the opposing goal of the year against, which did not come with a, an award name because there just weren't a lot of goals. Well, I mean, if we're just naming it after the people we gave it to, it's the Mason Toy opposing goal okay. of the year. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's kind of what we did a little bit. <laughs> which was the case as well with the uh, Gary Smith result of the year and the Jim Curtin result of the year against. I'm realizing now how unoriginal some of these names were. Uh, the Matt LaGrasa most viable invisible player, the Daryl DK most viable opposing player, and the Von Elrod's off-field moment of the year. We want your input. If we have some good ones, we'll read them on the show next week. But let's move on to an original, a Nashville SC original. We've talked to him once this year already, but he has since departed. He's living in the Commonwealth now, up in Virginia. He's got a different job. 
And uh, we thought it would be a good time to catch up with John Freeman and uh, relive a little bit his tenure at Nashville SC, the second year of Nashville SC's MLS existence, and so much more in a far-ranging discussion with former Nashville SC voice John Freeman. John Freeman was the voice of Nashville Soccer Club for all four seasons of the club's professional history, the first two on TV, the second two years on radio, and in November, he accepted an offer to return home and serve as the voice of the Virginia Cavaliers. John, great to have you on and catch up after a whirlwind for Nashville SC since you left the mic, but especially a whirlwind existence for you. How's life in Virginia? Man, Wes, uh, I miss you, partner. <laughs> it's like the <laughs> longest time we've spent without seeing each other for a good uh three or four years here. Uh, life is good. I'm actually in Nashville right now. We're working on on selling our home and it's a, a bittersweet process. It's a wonderful city, wonderful people, uh, and certainly aware that I'm leaving all of that behind uh, to go home. So it's uh, exciting, exhilarating to, to be going back to Virginia. And I've been so busy with games that I've had a hard time even uh, having a moment to, to reminisce too much, but uh, certainly will enjoy Enjoy this time talking to you and doing just that. Yeah, so on that note, you've uprooted your life really kind of in the middle of three seasons. I mean, you, you left in the in the kind of climax of NSC's season. You took on the job in the middle of UVA football, and then Hoops was basically into the season. I mean, you, you came in and took the job and were on the air just a, you know, a couple of days later, if I'm not mistaken, for the first game. What was it like uprooting everything personally and professionally as you've got three seasons where you've got to be an expert and be able to teach a class on these things going on at the same time? Yeah, it's uh, it's been an adventure, uh, and the hardest part of it all was just calling games uh, in so many different locations. Um, <laughs> so, for example, I, I essentially was auditioning for the Virginia job. Their guy, um, who had previously been doing it, uh, left to take a job with the Milwaukee Bucks as their radio announcer, and uh, I was hired on like four days' notice to do a football game just as a, a temp and. Um, that turned into a few other games uh, for UVA that essentially became an audition that essentially became a full-time job. But even between doing Virginia games for football, I was flying back to Nashville to call midweek Nashville SC games. <laughs> uh, the The actual hardest part of it, well, there's been a lot hard, but uh, a silly hard part has been the terminology. Um, I can't tell you how many times in football it was like, and we're here for a football match between Virginia <laughs> and Georgia Tech. Or like uh, we have a sideline reporter, and I think several times I was like, let's go down to the pitch to our JJ. <laughs> uh, so having to to rework some of the, the vocabulary has been, <laughs> been a, a fun little challenge to reprogram my mind. Yeah, I'll tell you what, there have been a few times when I've been writing – uh, for my day job, which I think most listeners know is covering Virginia Tech. Uh, sorry, we I guess we have no, to no, officially no. have beef now. But <laughs> but uh, there have been so many times I've been like, oh, yes, when the Hokies hit the pitch, delete, 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 delete the field <laughs> a lot of times. So, yeah, I, I definitely feel you in that in that regard. Of course, mine, mine, I can sit there and hit delete before I press send. You are you're you're live live on air there. Exactly. I am thankful, though. No draws. In football or basketball. My days of calling draws are over. <laughs> For now, until they rework the, the rules, now that they see you're from Nashville, let's see. They'll be like, nah, UVA, you can tie. We're, we're going to let you do it. Um, so you uh, you had a prolific career at, at Nashville SC so many memorable moments that, that you've called and we chatted earlier this season uh, when you were in that role still about about some of those but more broadly as you go to take your dream job at UVA where you grew up where you attended 
Um, how did your experience with Nashville SC over the last four years prepare you to take that dream job? Great question. Um, one thing that that I really enjoy about broadcasting, and rarely does it actually get to happen to a, a play-by-play broadcaster, um, is when they emotionally connect with the product that they're broadcasting. Um, so for Nashville SC, uh, like I lived in Nashville. Uh, my wife is from Nashville. Her parents are here. Like I've you know been to the city for over a decade um, and then moved to it. Uh, to be a resident before I even became the play-by-play broadcaster for Nashville. Um, so having an emotional connection to the city and the club uh, is a lot uh, or, or is very similar to the connection that I have at Virginia and being an alum and, and having grown up there and a, a true affection and love for the program, what it stands for. And the same thing goes back to Nashville SC. So I can't imagine, I mean, I'm sure I'd be able to, to do it, but not maybe even connect on the emotional level that I have with Nashville or UVA. But I can't imagine going to you know, somewhere that I've never been um, and broadcasting those games or you know, randomly being the voice of Iowa State or you know the, the play-by-play voice of Minnesota United. Like great places to call games, um, but it would be different uh, yeah. than, than what I've had here in Nashville and what I've had in Virginia. And um, I'm not afraid to to really pour myself into the calls uh, on the air. Um, and one of the reasons why is I feel you know emotionally connected to both Nashville and, and Virginia. And, um, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. So on that note, now that you aren't going to be calling the games for Nashville SC, how are you going to consume them? Are you going to be able to have an even deeper emotional connection? Are you maybe going to slightly disengage emotionally? What is it going to be like for you going forward, watching these matches next year? I can't. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> I was hoping I could just be a fan. Um, I watched the the Philadelphia game, uh, unfortunately, and, and had a hard time sleeping after it, to be honest. Um, like I imagine most of you you did. And, um, I haven't been able to, to detach from Nashville SC. Um, the, the people that I encountered with it uh, are still really close to me. Uh, I think I've probably communicated with both of you wanting to know roster decisions even though they they haven't come out yet but uh i I almost still feel like uh i i need to have that that insider knowledge that i was so privileged to get uh for four years and i I think eventually that access will fade uh, as it should Mm -hmm. um since i'm no longer part of of the club or or the broadcast but it's going to be uh a slow um, kind of trickle down of going from being someone who's, you know, on the inside getting, you know, the lineup the day before from Gary Smith and our, our coach calls to someone who um, turns on the game as just a fan. Um, And that'll be fun. Once I do uh, and make that transition, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, And uh, I can't wait to come, you know, in the summer next year and and come to a game. Uh, The question is, do I want to sit smack dab or stand smack dab in the middle of the supporter section? Or am I just going to be like breathing over Wes's neck, you know, <laughs> wanting, to, wanting, in on, wanting in on the broadcast? Hey. You, you I can was, do my, was... my typical stop by before the match and say, hey, to you guys before I go sit in the press box uh, act. That, I, that Yeah, I've I was going to say, you, you've always got a spot in the press box, but not if you're going to be breathing down my neck. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, maybe come say hi and like, get some food and head out. Wes, Wes, give me five minutes. Give me just five minutes. I'll take the 15th <laughs> through the 20th. 
<laughs> yeah. Hey, man, you got it. You got it if you want it. Uh, so you mentioned the the relationship with Gary, and and yeah, we are privileged to work with the manager who who trusts us and is willing to divulge that information. I know you can't just walk into a situation in Virginia and expect to have that relationship with any coach, no matter how great they are with media. Brock Mendenhall was so excited to see you coming. He decided to go ahead and resign. Um, how do you go about then establishing a relationship of trust with, with Tony Bennett, with, with the new coach at, uh, at, at Virginia on the football side, whoever that may be in, in the hopes to one day have the kind of connection that, that we did with Gary for so many years. Well, the first part of that is, um, I was with Gary Smith for five years. You know, the first time I talked with him was back when I was broadcasting for the amateur team, the U23s. And then, you know, the two USL years, the two MLS years. So I had half a decade with Gary Smith, which is unprecedented when it comes really to to any sports. I mean, name, you know, 10 sports teams, and you might have two or three that have the same coach uh, within – five-year spans. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get Gary Smith for five years um, was unique, uh, and I'm certainly thankful for it. And then he's also such a, a media-friendly coach. Uh, he respected us. He let us grow in the role. Uh, we probably asked him some really dumb questions in year one <laughs> uh, that weren't very sophisticated for somebody who really is so deeply knowledgeable about the sport and experienced in it. Uh, but he let us get away with him and, and grow and get better. Um, and it was so tolerant of it. Um, now with UVA, uh, I'm going to be dealing with a new coach in the next couple weeks, we'd imagine, uh, because Bronco Mendenhall just stepped down. So, you know, I'm at Virginia for five weeks and I have a new coach and I'm at Nashville SC for five years and I have the same coach. <laughs> uh, but it, it just comes down to uh, being prepared. And Wes, that's one reason, you know, and, and same for you, Tim that you're so respected amongst the coaches at, at Nashville SC and the administrators is because you're prepared. You, you come in knowledgeable. You're not asking them to tell you anything that you couldn't have found out on your own. Um, you're asking them to, to tell you something that, that they know um, that you want communicated to the audience. Um, so it's no different uh, across all sports, coming in prepared, coming in um, intentional, never being late, <laughs> uh, as, as well as a big one college coaches and pro coaches are on such a, a small time budget that you need to respect that. Um, and if they call and, and say they need the interview moved up by an hour or moved back by an hour, you need to be there um, because, because their job is a whole lot harder than mine. Well, in that regard, you know, you mentioned how important preparation is and, and how different it's going to be with a completely new set of coaches that you have to get to know. What is like maybe one Gary Smith story that kind of can can uh, uh, tie together, I guess, the relationship that you're able to build with him? Something that you that you feel comfortable telling on the air, obviously. Gosh, um, Gary and I had a relationship in which uh, he he knew that we always had his best interests in mind. Um, and he also knew that we are selling entertainment. Uh, that is what professional sports is when it all boils down to it. It is, it is entertainment. Um, so he got both aspects of that in a way that like, say Bill Belichick doesn't get, Hmm. you know, Bill Belichick's out there to win football games, which is what they're all the coaches are out there to do. But in the end, Gary also understood that people, uh, are going to follow this team for a lot of reasons. And one of them is, do we, are we entertained by it? Um, and we would kind of fish for storylines 
did you have, you know, a good relationship with Colorado, you know, when they were playing in the U.S. Open Cup? No, he, he didn't. They, they fired him two years after uh, he won the MLS Cup. And the, the follow-up question, as a coach, you gave us a quote, are we okay to use that on air? I um, mean, having that exchange of, no, I want to keep that between us, or yes, I'm fine with you, you know, repeating that on air. Um, that, that's what made Coach Smith unique um, in that we had that relationship where he could tell us things off the record, on the record. Um, he could help us build our storylines. Uh, he could say, I want, I don't want that to be one, um, even though it, it may be internally. Um, so a lot of the stories that, that go back to that are, are him giving us permission to really dive into something that's entertaining. Uh, the one I always tell is, and uh, I always reminisce back to the, the USL days is there was a coach that, um, who for like Harrisburg, Harrisburg City, City and yep. and yeah. a Penn FC, sorry. Penn yeah. FC at the time, yeah. <laughs> um, had, uh, he was German. Yep. Um, uh, Raul Voss, I think was his name. And I think like, like they didn't have a big media office in Penn FC. So I think it was like an intern holding a camera in front of this guy's face. Just being like, what do you think of Nashville SC? And the coach uh, in his second language, you know, said something like, you know, they play a typical English style, lots of long balls. Um, and this was right when the narrative was starting to change with Nashville SC of like, it's a really good attacking team and entertaining to watch. Um, and that quote got back to Gary Smith. Uh, and you know, we talked about it with him in the, the pregame coach call, and, and he had some really choice words uh, about you know, that inaccurate quote from that coach. And this is like a midweek game against Penn FC. It's not really like a marquee game. And here we are you know, opening the broadcast with some major storyline of, you know, their coach thinks this style, Gary Smith wants to run up the score. Uh, we've got like cross, you know, screenshots of the two coaches. And when it all is said and done, Nashville has this tremendous offensive performance in which they're still attacking at the end of it, despite leading by two goals. And we we're able to put that into context because you know, he was really honest about that game and, and what it meant to him and the storyline um, to the extent where, you know, here we are in USL and how many times in USL, does the final whistle blow and the producers are like, we're going to get the handshake shot. We're going to get the handshake shot. And, you know, they share the handshake <laughs> coming together. And uh, those are things that you don't really get in a lot of broadcast um, at that level, um, just because most broadcasters aren't allowed uh, or given the access to build uh, a storyline like that. Well, and the, the context that we got from Gary on that call led to a final call in that match, if I remember correctly, that got you in the opening melt of Sports Center for a, for a long time because you said at the end they scored their third goal and you said it's in their DNA, as in this truly is who this team is. They are an attacking group, and that was on Sports Center's opening melt for, for a good while. So, see, even down to to giving us something that we can use to create a compelling product. He is a master at that. And of course you were a master at then turning that into a storyline that was clear to communicate. Yeah. I mean, Gary, when you look around the league is an elite coach when it comes to how he treats the media, I don't think anybody would um, deny that. It's so rare that you get a coach that has the passion and fire and expertise of Gary Smith but also just the genuine kindness of the coach. I mean, how many times have you been in a press conference? And this doesn't happen with the national media because you, know, you guys and Drake and 
um, Ben and, and everybody else that covers the team is so versed in the sport and, and asks really good, intelligent, prepared questions. But, you know, we've been in press conferences where <laughs> Gary will get a question and we all kind of just cringe. Like it, maybe it's from outside media. Um, and a lot of coaches would would really react to that in a salty way um, or in a, a snide way. And I think Gary understands that, yeah, he is you uh, an expert in, in professional soccer and, and has a proven track record and was just dropped into a state that didn't have professional soccer. Um, and he understands that, that it is a growing process um, in terms of, of the media and, and he uh, is tolerant um, in that sense. And I think that's really unique. To characterize that approach from Gary, we were on a call recently with him. I think it may have been actually your your last call where you said farewell to him and thanked him for the access and so many of the things you're praising now. And and he said, hey, guys, you know me. I can give a non-answer with the best of them if I choose to. <laughs> I just I choose to give you guys great perspective because I know I can trust you with it. I think that, that characterizes Gary very well. And he's very good at, at twisting things to – not twisting things, but at, at revealing what he wants to reveal and uh, – and certainly always in a gracious manner that's going to reflect positively on on his club, unless you're in yeah. Orlando, maybe, and disagree with his and, assessment and, of a call. <laughs> and I'll, I'll jump with that too, Wes, is that he's a trusting coach mm-hmm. uh, in that the people who are surrounding the club and in, in broadcast sense, he trusts. Um, and one of the examples is um, back in USL days, the second year, uh, Jamie Watson was brought in to be my TV color analyst for a game um, as a, essentially a, an audition for him um, for the club. And um, we were playing Birmingham, I think, midweek, and we have a call with Gary beforehand. And uh, as any coach who gives out a lot of information on those calls would be, um, he was really interested in who's this new guy on the call before I divulge my starting lineup for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of vouched for Jamie for 30 or 45 seconds and said, you know, coach, he's with Minnesota United, but you know, he's sworn to secrecy and uh, you know, we've kind of vetted him in a sense and uh, he's not going to leak this anywhere. And uh, he took our word for it uh, and treated Jamie like uh, anybody else on the broadcast crew from day one, even though he was a substitute and uh, like to think that that Jamie maybe uh, will buy him a drink somewhere down the line (laughs) because I think the audition went pretty well. I'd say so. Um, we've talked a lot about Gary and about prepping for these matches in, in our conversations with him. But as you think about what else went into, you know, making the sausage of these broadcasts, if you will, what would surprise people um, that maybe don't have the access that we do or the knowledge that Tim does of, of some of these calls? You know, I guess when you think about what it was like to tell the club story, what what do you think would be surprising to some folks? Man, that we we don't drive off in Maseratis. Uh, <laughs> uh, you guys don't? No, no, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, Ferraris. Um, I don't really know the answer to that question, to be honest. Um, what you saw was what you got, you know, and, and we didn't really hold anything back or um, we, we really did just kind of tell the story as it was as it was presented um, by the team. I don't think we ever made anything up. Um Maybe I over-exaggerated things in the year number one or something. I think there was one game where it was the only game on uh, in America and Canada and Mexico that night. It was like a Tuesday USL. Like, this is the biggest game on the continent tonight. <laughs> uh, so maybe we went a little over the top there. But 
uh, I feel like our broadcast and, and Wes, you do such a good job of this is you back up so much of what you do with context and numbers and figures and um, historical context that uh, I always felt like it was a, a pretty honest broadcast. So I don't think people would be surprised um, based on, on what we know and, and what the final product was. So I've, I've, as I mentioned a little while ago, been been in the booth with you guys before the games, always getting out of there to let you do your thing by the time the game started, seeing the flipboards that you guys make for yourselves. How long is the preparation process for each individual match, getting all of your visual aids prepared, studying what shoes guys are going to be wearing, that sort of thing? It's a, it's a three to one ratio. I've actually figured out the time. Um, and I've determined, at least for me, that for every hour I'm on the air, it takes three hours of prep. So if it's a three hour broadcast, I'm going to spend nine hours of prepping. I've actually gotten to the point where I was starting to over prep uh, and come into games and be over prepped and spend 12, 13 hours and end up having been able to produce the same product with nine hours of prep. Um, or the other way around, I've come in underprepared and I realized that you know I didn't put in the time necessary. Um, so truly, I'll give you the number. You tell me it's a three hour broadcast and it's nine hours of prep. Uh, if it's a two hour broadcast, it's six hours of prep. In the case of Virginia football, six hour broadcast, 18 hours of prep. Um, so it, it really is to me just a, a time on air to time, time prep ratio. But there are a lot of little things that go with that. Uh, soccer is a little easier because body types are really different in soccer. Hairstyles are really different in yeah. soccer. Faces, skin tone, running gait, all of that. Um, so it's a lot easier to identify the players. Football's, <laughs> football's a different game. You know, it's does he wear his towel on his left hip or right hip? Are his socks mid-calf or the ankle? Um, does he have a visor? Uh, sometimes you just can't tell. Uh, and you've got to figure out how to identify them on a delay. Um, but uh, for soccer, yeah, typically a three to one ratio. Of course, now you have, you know, from a practical standpoint, thinking about football, 100 guys to learn the bios of as opposed to, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know you you're been... going to you're gonna spend more time with the key skill players and with the standout guys. But like you've got to you've got to have the basics on at least a two deep on each side. That's got to be different to, to be prepping for at the very least 44 to 50 names, you know, across the field as opposed to to what you're seeing with soccer. Soccer's a little different now, though. I mean, you can look at a, a soccer game and they could have six subs. So you're looking at is it, it's six, right? Yeah. Five. Shows six and extra I'm, time. I'm rusty. I'm rusty. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it all goes out in one yeah, game exactly. together as soon as he's gone. So you're guys. looking at 22, 27, 32 players that could play. Mm -hmm. uh, I would argue that 32 would touch the ball at some point in the game. That's more than the amount of players that will touch the ball in a, a football game. Um, so for college football, um, truly, I, I only need to memorize who's going to touch the ball. Um, and in that case, usually it's about 12 players a game for each team. Um, I'm not sitting there with flashcards for who's the left tackle. Um, and if, you know, a penalty flag gets put on number 58, I can look at my roster for that. I don't need to know <laughs> off the top of my That's head. Fair. Yeah, if, yeah. You, if you need to know something about the left tackle, it's going to be a notable enough story that, that you'll know it <laughs> yeah. anyway, right? Yeah. That's fair. Uh, so as you think about players that you've covered in Nashville, I'm going to ask you a tough question. Ooh. What is your favorite individual player story arc that you were able to cover in your four years in Nashville? Ooh. I mean, it's no secret that, that, uh, and I can say it now that I'm no longer the play-by-play the -play radio broadcaster for Nashville. See, my favorite player is Taylor Washington because I think he embodies 
everything about this club. Um, one, it's got to be a player who's been there for the whole journey because that's somebody who you know we naturally attach ourselves to because everybody on this this call right here started at the beginning too um, with the club and grew and got better at what we do um, around the club. And I, I feel like Taylor really mirrors that. Um, I, I think what's so special about Taylor is that he was really invested not only in this club, but soccer in the city to the extent mm -hmm. where um, when all the stadium stuff was going down while he was in USL and uh, there was the voting and the Metro meetings and, and all of that coyote mess, you know, <laughs> like all of that, like Taylor was actually present at those mm -hmm. um, and campaigning for MLS in Nashville, even though statistically he had about a 90% chance of, or maybe even more of if that went through, he would be without a job. Uh, in this city. So I just love the idea that not only was he concerned about you know the future of the sport in the city, maybe at his own expense, he was also betting on himself uh, to be a part of it and the confidence in that and knowing what it would take. Um, and then he went out and did it. You know, he trained really hard. He is so much of a better player than when he first came to Nashville. Yeah. And I'm sure he'd admit that. Um, and that's just hard work. Um, and that's that's listening to your coaches and diving in. And um, I mean, he went vegan after, <laughs> you know, two years in USL, just knowing that, you know, his body had to respond to a, a faster, more harsh game in MLS. So he is just really embodies what this club is, a player that was essentially cut by Philadelphia without without an MLS appearance, um, really not all that, you know, wanted in Pittsburgh after a year goes to Nashville after, you know, being a, a bit of an afterthought to a USL team. And here he is, you know, a hundred appearances for the club on hopefully on the verge of, yeah, there's the photo right there. from Ted. <laughs> Yeah. It's a good one. Um, but I, I just think the whole story, the story arc to me, um, and it's not done yet. I would hope, you know, we'll, we'll find out about the roster decisions. But um, when I think about Nashville SC, when I think about a, a player that embodies the rise of this club and, and the attitude of the club and, um, the whole vibe around it. Um, he's not a, a glamorous player by any means. This club isn't a glamorous club um, by any means. If you want a, a glamorous club that doesn't go to the playoffs, go to LAFC. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you want a, a real blue-collar, successful, hardworking club, uh, this is it, and, and no player embodies that more than, than Taylor Washington. And that club has provided so many memorable moments for its supporters. As we as we close out here, I want to ask you, as you communicate to folks in Virginia what it was like to cover this club, as they may ask you what moments stood out to you, what were the most special times for you, uh, you've got four seasons to reflect on now. I think we asked you this midway through the year, but, but looking back again, favorite moment on the microphone for Nashville SC? Man, ah, uh, gosh. There's, it's just like two different worlds, you know, USL, you connected with it in a emotional kind of I'm inside the club type of way. And then MLS, um, in a, in a different way of just, this is incredible at a, a really grand scale. Um, I would think opening night to me was, was certainly up there. Um, it was my birthday, uh, <laughs> or it was a day after my birthday. Uh, and also, um, I'd only found out I was going to call that game about two days before it happened. 
um, Tony's visa didn't go through. Uh, so I, I got the call. So I just remember feeling so fortunate to be there um, and to be on the call and for it to play out the way it did. I know it wasn't a win, but they got the goal and it was just a, a surreal uh, experience. And to be you know someone who would call games at the U23 level with amateur athletes at Vanderbilt's you know, soccer stadium to then three years later be you know, in an NFL stadium with that many people. Um, it'll, it'll forever be a, a surreal moment for me. And I wouldn't say that, you know, is, is lock, lock in number one moment, but uh, if you press me for an answer right now, I'd say that's the one. Hard to beat the maiden goal. Uh, to close out, you have developed such a special relationship with Nashville SC supporters. I don't anticipate this being the last time we talk with you on air. We'll be texting probably later today about other things too, <laughs> soccer and UVA. Certainly not not personally either, but 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 it may be a good opportunity for you to to sign off with Nashville SC supporters and you know with the diehards that are listening here, those who are new to the show, who maybe got to know your calls a little later in the process. Uh, what do you want to tell them? What, what are your final final words for now to Nashville SC supporters? Man, that's a that's a hard one because I'm looking at this Zoom meeting and you guys need to buy the premium because right now it's <laughs> counting down and I've only got 10 minutes and 15 seconds. No pressure. Uh, I could go on for 30 minutes. Uh, I might actually have to pay for the premium right now to, to do it. But uh, <laughs> I mean, the Nashville SC supporters uh, are, are exactly what what their name is. I mean, they are supporters in so many different ways. And this club has had such a, a meteoric rise but if, if you look, if you zoom out, it's like a stock that just goes right up. But if you really kind of live it like the way that we have in the last four years, this has been one zigzag ride for sure. And there have been some big highs and some major lows. Um, and through all of it, the supporters have been there um, and they have shown out strong whenever they're asked to um, and whenever they're not asked to. They are always there to support this club. And I've always felt like um, in a you know, kind of self-important way that that's how they treated me on the broadcast side. Uh, I went from an amateur soccer broadcaster for the club to a major league soccer broadcaster in, in four years. And there was a lot of ups and downs um, in that on the way. And a lot of mistakes were made um, on the broadcast, certainly by me. <laughs> and the supporters were always supportive um, and tolerant. And they allowed me to grow into a broadcaster that, you know, eventually was qualified enough to, to get a really hard to get job at Virginia. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why is they gave me confidence uh, and a confidence, bro confident broadcaster is, is usually much better than one that isn't. Um, so when I think about the supporters and they supported my journey, but uh, I also, you know, I don't think I would be the broadcaster today um, without, you know, their support and, and the way that they've acted around the club uh, is the same way that they've acted around me. I have to say one thing to, to bring it into uh, from from your old era into the current era uh, as a UVA broadcaster. How dare you say the left tackle isn't going to touch the ball uh, on third and seven uh, to short of the goal line. <laughs> oh, man. Just had to bring that one up. Nah, sports are unpredictable uh, for sure. So that yeah, that was losing a Virginia Tech was was my uh, my first first broadcast in that rivalry. But uh, hopefully we'll get some down the line. Well, thanks so much, John. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. Thanks, You've been guys. an exemplary colleague. We're excited to follow you as you uh, embark on your dream job. I think UVA just gained a lot of fans in Middle Tennessee. So uh, looking forward to, to keeping in touch, and thanks for joining us.
Great. Looking forward to getting some free tickets from you guys. <laughs> As he stares into the camera with expectant <laughs> eyes. You got it, brother. Anytime you want to come up to the press box, just don't breathe down our necks. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Later. So, Tim, our first repeat guest this year, John Freeman. And what a guy to pick to, to do that. We, we've talked a lot about John, even on episodes he's not on. Uh, because you know he was leaving, we wanted to give him give him some love on the way out. But uh, again, tremendous insight from him, and and funny his hear hear his perspective about how the sausage is made, uh, especially when when he talks about the relationship with with Gary Smith. I think that was the most interesting part to me, and it's something I've lived as well as part of that broadcast team. This is not something you get everywhere. Yeah, and obviously you and I are, are both very close with John, so. So from our perspective, it's not like we're catching up with some celebrity, but it, it feels like an old friend because he is an old friend. And I think, um, you know, for a lot of our listeners, even people who don't know John personally, he probably feels like an old friend. Nonetheless, he's been a, an important piece of, of some huge parts of people's lives if they're huge Nashville SC fans. And that's been so important, not just to to the club, but to the community. I think a guy like John was was the perfect voice for this club because of how much passion he had, not just for the club, but the passion he had for for doing a good job at his job. Uh, I don't think you could say everybody does that. I don't think you could say his broadcast partner necessarily. Always oh, just I'm just kidding. Jeez, but no, regular. But obviously we're going to miss John, John in the radio booth, but we're not, we're not going to be strangers. And it's going to be, it's going to be nice to see him live out his dream, calling his alma mater's games, football, basketball, et cetera. Yeah. And if you want any proof that he fell in love with this club, uh, he's reached out as, as he's mentioned on the show to each of us since moving up to Virginia and calling, you know, three, four sporting events a week to check in on the team, how things are going from an insider's perspective. Um, he's not going anywhere in, in the world that we live in, um, in, in the especially post-pandemic world that's so virtually driven in so many cases. He's going to follow along very closely and uh, certainly um, appreciate everything he gave to the club and, and him giving us some time today. So thanks again to, uh, to John. Now it's your turn, guys. We'll move to the mailbag now and answer a few questions as we are switching fully into off-season mode and talking roster. And we will have a lot of in-depth conversations during the winter of Tim. Hashtag? Is that a hashtag? Hot, hot Tim Winter. Hot Tim Winter. Hot Tim Winter. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to avoid the hot reference. <laughs> nope, nope. You're right. Hot go, Tim Winter. Go on in. Yeah, come in, Wes. Water's warm. Uh, my ja- I'm going to keep my jacket on, I think. Um, <laughs> so, so Logan Elliott, as we lead off this segment of hashtag Hot Tim Winter. There you go. Um says, what are some areas that you think Mike Jacobs might look to improve and add uh, reinforcements this offseason? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, is a creative dribbler. Um, that can be at a wing spot. It can be one of the more reserved midfielders as a guy who kind of comes in as an offensive replacement for, for either Dax McCarty, who brings some of that forward play himself, or Anibal Godoy, who um, brings it more from a shooting perspective than a dribbling perspective. But what you've seen when this Nashville team, especially faces a bunker, is Hani Mukhtar loves to dribble. Randall Leal loves to dribble, but they're asked to do too much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they there's not necessarily a third guy who can take a bit of the pressure off of them. Obviously, a guy like CJ Sapong is a glorious striker. He's not a guy who's going to get out there and dribble a defender. So you need another guy who can create a little bit and make life a little bit easier on the guys around them. In a perfect world, was that going to be Mr. Pinheiro? Yeah, in a, per- in a perfect world, there was that opportunity. I think the... 
the reality of his situation was that it was always going to take an adjustment. I think mm-hmm. we've seen that it was a much greater adjustment than, than anybody expected. Even I was, a, I was a skeptic that he would be a first year contributor. And it was, is uh, even beyond that in terms of my expectations, but yeah, you do need another guy like that. And he, in the long term can provide that sort of skill set. Um, we'll see if he is able to do it for Nashville SC in the future. Yeah, and that's that was my answer as well, really, Tim, was, you know, if you're looking at a potential four, two, three, one setup, who's on that right wing? You know, mm-hmm. if you put Land Randall on the left, you've Hani at, at the 10, kind of as a hybrid second striker with with a guy like CJ, that right wing ended up being a place where, you know, it was enough of a gap that Gary Smith changed formation. And again, mm-hmm. there were other reasons for that as well. But but if yeah. you have that answer on the right wing Maybe you don't. Uh, maybe that's that's a place that you stick and continue to uh, to fly forward if you're if you're strong and have those dribblers on on both sides around Ahani Mukhtar. Yeah, and I think I think the the switch to that three four three three five two hybrid deal was in part because it it meant that there wasn't a requirement for another dribbler like that. It allowed you to move CJ out to the wing and become a passing creator combining with Hani in a different way than being a, a break them down on the dribble sort of guy. And that, that again, you know, we, we, we sing the praises of Gary Smith as much as anybody, but that was almost a, a kind of a masterclass by Gary to find that midseason. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely a place where you're looking to, to upgrade and grow stronger uh, in a place where you maybe hope that Pinheiro in a year two is mature enough to contribute. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't sound like that will end up being, being the answer based on how year one went. The other question for me, of course, is what is the future in central midfield? Um, Matt LaGrasa is gone now. He was a, a dependable guy who could come in in a pinch and, and quit himself nicely. Uh, but he was always going to be a bit limited in the, on the attacking side of things. He would tell you that that's just, you know, his game was more to be a stable influence in, in central midfield. Can you find a two-way player, uh, a number eight type, who's going to be the future Dax McCarty? And those are lofty expectations <laughs> to set up. Uh, so we don't necessarily mean to have the prolific career he did, but but perform that role. Uh, what is your future there? Todd Ryan is there, and, and he has potential to really develop into that. You need another one. And I think we see Nashville SC probably reach, I would say, domestically there. Without yeah. in, inside information, you, you, we've talked about this. There, there's a, a goldmine of domestic players you can put in there without bringing them in at a DP level or TAM level salary that can really contribute. Um, Chris Hole's talking positional play here, and, and maybe he has an answer for a four-two-three-one. Maybe Ake Loba's that right wing. Uh, he says, "Can you describe the positional conflict that Ake finds himself in, and how this how this may be resolved for 2022?" Gary describes his skill set as honey-like, and yet the preferred lineup next season must include them both, or NSC has to admit to a significant roster build error. Thanks for the question, Chris. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, as as we built the show, as we were going through our, our pre-show meeting here, that I noticed that they flow so perfectly, logically, these two questions in order. But um, I think to to it kind of does fold into what you just said at the beginning there, which is maybe he's the answer more than uh, there's that much of a conflict here. Because I, I know Gary Smith did tell us that part of the reason that Ake didn't play as much this year as, as you might've expected or hoped was because there was a bit of an, a positional overlap with Hani Mukhtar. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just one of the reasons that Aki didn't play as much this year. Um, he's a guy with skills to play anywhere in a front four. I mean, he can play left wing, he can play right wing, he can play striker, and he can play kind of as that second striker or attacking midfielder that Hani is, is kind of in the role that, that prevented him from playing. And I think what you saw more than these two guys are the same was it's more difficult for Ake to get into the system at multiple positions at once. We need a guy who can play the role that, that Hani plays when Hani is unavailable. And I, fortunately Hani is a guy who has not been available a ton in his career, but this year was, it was a very healthy year for him. So it worked out perfectly. 
for everybody but Ake Loba. <laughs> so um, I think when you see a guy with his skill set who has the goal hunger that he does, as many goals as Hani scored this year, he's not necessarily a goal-hungry attacker. Mm-hmm. Um, CJ Sapong is a goal-hungry attacker. Um, I think Daniel Rios is a goal-hungry attacker. But beyond that, Ake Loba might be the third the third guy on that list who really wants to just get out and get goals for himself. Um, Randall Leal also, but in a very different way sure. <laughs> in terms of how he seeks the goal. So I think now that you have an offseason to let Loba get used to Nashville, get used to Gary Smith, get used to the teammates who are going to be around him, he has the opportunity to learn all of those front four positions or or the front three positions, depending on what formation we see going forward. And I think it'll be pretty easy to play him with Hani in addition to being the guy who's maybe a like-for-like like replacement off the bench. Sure. And, you know, it, it's a little easier to come in midseason if you're a talisman type who's going to be at the top of the formation and who can just turn it on and dominate without a lot of tactical integration and, and come in and, and just tear it up. Mm-hmm. That's not Akeloba. Five foot eleven at, at more of an intricate game, you know, he, he does need time to adjust into a system and and needs the pressure off of him a little bit, I think, quite honestly. And, you know, I think working on that right wing with Ahani distributing with a CJ up top as that talisman, as that target, gives him some freedom. Uh, but again, like you've said, once he's tactically integrated, it's it's a yeah. lot harder to come in and just do that automatically and understand where you're going to be on the pitch. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that when he was signed or, or when he was initially pursued, which was at the beginning of, of last season, um, as Nashville was hoping for a summer transfer window, uh, obviously... 2020 went exactly as everyone planned and, and Ake Loba <laughs> signed at that time. But even when he signed this year, I don't think Nashville was expecting Hani Mukhtar to be putting together an MVP season. They were probably thinking Ake Loba comes in and he becomes the guy. By the time Ake arrived, uh, went through his mandatory quarantine, got integrated into the system, all of a sudden you you have a guy who is the guy that you didn't necessarily expect and you don't need to have Ake Loba step up and be, okay, just go out there and bag a, bu- a bunch of goals because we need you to do that. All of a sudden they had Hani and it made Ake, I don't want to say a luxury piece because that makes him sound like you can just cast him off, but a piece for the 2021 season that you didn't have to rely on in the way that you were maybe expecting to when you signed it. And look, let's not be Pollyanna here. I think we would both agree that that Nashville would have loved to have seen more out of Ake Loba in the situations yeah. when he came in uh, and, and more minutes out of him, ideally. But I think the question that, that we saw on Twitter and we've had people ask us of, wow, he couldn't even get in the playoffs, what's wrong with Ake Loba, is a bit of a misguided premise there when you have, as you've mentioned, the talent elsewhere and, and some of the tactical challenges of integrating him. Uh, I think the beauty and the frustration of Gary Smith is that he's not like every other manager in Major League Soccer. So the argument of, well, 20 other places he'd have played significant minutes by now. Yeah, 20 other places had worse records than Nashville SC this year. Um, that doesn't mean that, that Gary's perfect or the, or the plan was perfect for Ake. I think, you know, he underperformed probably by his own standards this year. But I agree. He's a, you know, with, rather than calling him a luxury piece, you know, a, a future investment. And, yeah, and a near yeah, future investment as, as 2022 will really define what he can mean to this club. Yeah. And in a different way, because he did play a bunch of minutes last year through injury, but in a different way at the end of last year, everybody was saying, what's wrong with Hani Mukhtar? I think the preseason narrative from, from MLSsoccer.com, shout out to Matt Doyle, our good friend, <laughs> Matt Doyle, but uh, it was saying Hani Mukhtar can't get the job done. They need to find somebody else. And then all of a sudden this dude um, finishes number two for MVP. We assume, um, 
I don't think Ake Loba is going to finish number two in the MVP race next year. But if he has remotely the sort of year one to year two leap that Hani Mukhtar does, I think everybody's going to forget that it was a disappointing introduction for him. You heard it here first. Tim Sullivan thinks that Ake Loba is going to finish number one in MVP <laughs> next year. No, I, listen, um, Reddit and Ink, Wes. I'm, I'm saying an MVP. <laughs> Invisible Ink. Got it. Yeah. Uh, good follow-up question from Chris as we change the subject, but we're still keeping this really smooth segue rundown because it's still Chris asking the question, so there's there's a tie there. Um, is the Eastern Conference obviously the best long-term home for Nashville SC, or is there any reasonable argument for a permanent move to the West? As, again, Nashville SC, at least for next year, will be moving to the Western Conference. Chris ends with, I can't formulate a good reason, if we accept that road support culture is an important ingredient in the recipe of a successful MLS club. Yeah, I think first things first is I'm going to disagree with the last part. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Is I mean, road support culture is nice, but it's not going to make that big of an impact on the field. If it was such an important piece, I think Nashville, which had some of the best traveling support in the league this year, would have been able to turn more of those frustrating draws into wins when they had you know 40 or 50 people in Soldier Field, which was as many fans as the <laughs> Chicago Fire had in Soldier Field. Yep. That could have been a win if, if road support was so important. Now, that said the the uh reason that the west is less convenient for nashville sc fans is because of that traveling support if you kind of throw that out the window and i'm not throwing it out the window completely i'm just saying if that if that's not a factor the conferences are essentially equal to me i think the specific geography is not quite as important there are exciting matchups in both conferences. there might be opportunity for more exciting matchups in the west um you know as as much as philadelphia seems to be a, a fun rival as much as cincinnati is is what cincinnati is as much as atlanta is a natural geographic rival i think it would be great to have rivalries with uh the sounders with austin fc with some of these other clubs in the western conference i think you can build the narratives that you want to build um all of that said, when St. Louis and, and presumably Las Vegas are both in Major League Soccer, Nashville is going to be in the East anyway, which I think makes everyone happier uh, from a travel perspective. So it may all be academic in the end anyway. Yeah, you make good points. I, and I, I'm, you know, my preference is to be in the East long term and to play two and sometimes three matches per year against teams that are three, four or five hours away. I, I, completely... I, will, I will say it, I think it's everyone's preference. Sure. To a certain extent, I'm like kind of happy about one year in the West. You get to play each team in Major League Soccer, which you hadn't been able to do. The fact that it's just one year, though, is, is important because you want to get those first games against Seattle, against uh, Real Salt, or not Real Salt Lake because they played this year, but whomever else. You want to get those first games under your belt and then go back to the East and, and uh, live the rest of your life, I guess. I agree completely. Yeah, sorry, Wait, sorry I interrupted you. No, it's a good interruption, and I agree. Like, Man, we're embracing consensus a lot today. <laughs> Uh, maybe a record in, in consensus reaching. But, yeah, I mean, now, am I going to be happy on a Sunday night at, at when we're kicking off at 10 p.m.? Uh, at, at, like, 11.55, as there was a game <laughs> scheduled for uh, in 2020. That was bad. Yeah. That was yeah. bad, and that was – and it was, like, a midweek, I think. There was one that was yeah. a midweek that was super I think so, late. Yeah. Like, calling sick the next day, man. Um, soccer sick. But you know, I think, yeah, you said it. Like, most people are going to prefer to be in the East long term. So many reasons for that. But, hey, I wasn't the – very short-term president of the University of Tennessee Debate Society for nothing. I can argue both sides of, of an issue. Just ask my wife. Um, there are some reasons why a long-term move to the West wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And Tim, you touched on it a bit. Rivalries are created um, out of action, not in a marketing boardroom and not on a map. 
And, you know, we would all call Atlanta and Cincinnati rivalries for this club. But what were the fiercest battles this year? They were NYC. They were Orlando. Two clubs that are nowhere near Music City. And yet Nashville made rivalries out of those matches. They weren't born out of mere geography. Now, uh, you will still play. Nashville will still play eight clubs in the East next year. You better believe there's going to be Atlanta, Cincinnati, Charlotte, on that schedule. Those three that are relatively close are still going to be there. So if you're going to play those games... I would, either, bet, I would bet on Orlando, too. I would, bet, I, I would bet. I would, I would and then we know Philly is, but that's a different story. Right. So you've got you've got great matchups. You've got some continuity there. And you've got, most likely, the, the geographically close matches. You only get to play them once and not twice, and that's a bummer. But if you can keep those regional matches intact and also hatch some of those new rivalries, who knows who they could be? Could it be the Mike Jacobs Cup against SKC that, that goes crazy? Is it Vancouver because Lucas Cavallini earns a red card? Like, you never know. You just never know. And so to form new relationships with those other clubs and give those relationships a time to breathe a little bit wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Also, if you can make a TV ratings case for something, then you can foresee it happening no matter how little it might make sense geographically, especially in the flat world that we live in. So, you know, TV appeal could be another reason why. You know, maybe MLS says we want to get some of these West Coast stars and behemoth clubs into southeastern homes. And so Nashville is going to be our conduit for that. So Galaxy and LAFC, you're going to play more games against Nashville. So we can in Seattle and some of these, you know, quote unquote, big clubs, either by spending or by or by reputation. Maybe it's a way to, you know, to flatten the MLS world just a little bit. And um, and maybe you can make a TV ratings case for that. Not that Nashville's driving national ratings like some of these other more legacy clubs. But if you can bring that into uh, the southeastern region, maybe Nashville's a practical uh, case for that. And then the third reason, and I, I can pick a hole in this one pretty easily, but competitive balance. If you looked at the six most recent expansion teams, split them down the middle. Nashville, St. Louis, and Austin on one side, Charlotte, Miami, and Cincy on the other. Uh, the competitive balance argument doesn't hold up when you consider what those expansion teams have yeah. done, namely Nashville succeeded. It's not a, a weakling that you want to ship off to the West. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you just put, if, if you, you can split them five, one, you put Cincinnati on one side and then all of them have the same number of losses over that time. <laughs> that's a great way to end that answer. That's, that's yeah, exactly. Uh, John Mueller, given David Ochoa's villain status this postseason. Are villains necessary in sports? Should NSC entertain one being for this? He editorializes hopefully one year stint in the West. And which 2021 roster player would best fill that role? Um, Are villains necessary in sports is a moot point because villains are inevitable in sports, in my in my view. Uh, we will make villains out of our opponents because they are our opponents. And if they happen to commit the cardinal sin of having a personality when they score yeah. against us or make a save, oh man. Well, the, it must be noted that unlike ourselves, our villains all have great moral failings too. Like the opponent can't believe oh, yeah. he did that X, Y, and Z thing that makes him just a worse person than us because he's on the opposing team too. Every right? college football program <laughs> is paying players on the side except for ours. Um, not that that's the moral fa- perceived as the moral failing that it used to be. Um, and then, you know, Tennessee hands out McDonald's bags with cash. <laughs> Legs were cut out from under me. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, so a bit of a cop out answer there to start with is that villains are inevitable and, and Nashville will have villains. Um, they will be a villain to some. Now, should Nashville make a calculated effort to be the villain? 
I don't think it's the organization's personality. I think this is an organization that would much prefer to fly under the radar and complain about being under the radar uh, than to make itself the object of undue ire and, and hatred for anything more than just shutting somebody down and being the scourge of, of attacks as they were this year in the East and could be in the West as well. So, you know, will Nashville be a villain if it does in the West what it did this year? Maybe. They're the newcomer and they're coming in and taking points from people. If there's a one player that, that people would pin that to, I see Anibal Godoy as a potential contestant in that in that uh, sweepstakes. Of course, he used to play in the West. He knows the conference well. He has some existing rivalry there. Um, he can be a salty uh, and very physical player. And, of course, we've seen the attacking side as well of what he can do to contribute to goals. I think Anibal Godoy is my early candidate for Nashville SC 2022 Villain of the Year. Yeah, I think I think the we'll just go out and beat you and not not talk smack or anything is almost a worse way to become a villain. It gets under people's <laughs> skin even more because it's, you're acting like that's what you expected to do. But I don't like you mentioned, I, I don't necessarily think that's uh, that Nashville's DNA is to go out and be the the rough and tumble kind of uh, dirty villainous sort of team. But there are a lot of options if you want to pick a player to to be the the talisman of a dirty team or a a villainous team. I should I should specify there, but I am going to go with one that will just completely annoy. Based on his identity, it will completely annoy the opposing fans, the opposing players. And that's Alistair Johnson. Oh, this yeah. is this is a dude who is who on his face is so obviously one of the nicest guys out there. He's Canadian um, by all means. So a heel turn would just be an absolutely great storyline. And of course, because he's Canadian, it makes him very easy to root against for opposing fans who uh, they really don't want to pull for a guy who is who is a key player for the best team in CONCACAF as as they visit um, various uh, West Com- Western Conference uh, venues inside the United States. They'll say, oh, this Canadian star who's out here uh, topping the Ocho with his with his maple leaf toting <laughs> team. I mean, the Canadian military is at least in, in the past, you know, half century, notoriously uh, weak is a, is a strategically weak. Um, yeah. But I don't think, I think it's more than strategy. I think it's that they get all their aggression out in the hockey rink. And, <laughs> and Alistair, and this, this is, by the way, is not my theory. It's my wife's who is, is Canadian. Uh, <laughs> Alistair's a great representation of that. Is he a nice guy? Yeah. Is he generous with his time? Yeah, we've, we've benefited from that. Um, he came on the show and had just incredible things to say and insight and went longer than we were scheduled to go. Uh, admirable human being off the pitch, of course. On it, he gets that aggression out, man. Uh, he was actually, so I went to training uh, before the Orlando playoff match, and it was by Nashville standards, a cool day outside. It was maybe the mid-30s, low-40s. Alistair had just gotten back from Edmonton, from taking on Mexico. He was wearing more clothing in training in Nashville <laughs> in the sun and 40 degrees than he was in Edmonton against Mexico in 14-degree weather with an insane wind chill. Because, of course, he wanted to be that villain against Mexico. He wanted to show that he could handle that cold. He didn't give a crap about how uncomfortable or numb he was. And it worked out. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. That's right. No, I'm doing that. Finally, a a bit of outreach from Sarah Doxical. Uh, Spotify has informed me, she says, that you were my top podcast of 2021. This is not a question, just a celebration. Sarah, hell yeah. We're going to celebrate that too. That is awesome. Uh, 
Spotify wrapped for the win, man. It's great <laughs> to hear. Thank you, Sarah, for that. I believe Sarah actually said to us earlier in the year that she she wasn't a particularly big podcast yeah. person, was trying to get into them. Hey, Sarah, thank you. Thank yeah, you for absolutely. getting into them and for listening to us. Yeah, and, and a, an additional shout out to Sarah, who's so dedicated that she regularly made the drive for home games from Cookville, which is um, as local listeners know, no, no easy feat. So wow, yeah. I guess that might be that might be why she had so much time to listen to our podcast. But thank you, Sarah. We do greatly appreciate it. That really did make my day, and it you know makes our day to hear that, that we're contributing to your Nashville SC experience. So uh, so thank you very much. There's a lot of good music on Spotify too. You might want to check it out. It's way better way better than than this podcast. But just saying. Um, outside in, let's let's go there. Uh, let's talk MLS Cup, NYCFC and Portland. You can get a lot of league-wide chatter and a lot of talk about this game, so we're not going to go just terribly in-depth on on analyzing it all. But, but Tim, interested to know who you would side with, who you think is going to win. Yeah, I, I kind of teased it a little bit earlier is that Portland's a, an okay team that that ends up doing really well, while NYCFC is, a, is an elite team that ends up doing just okay. And so it's kind of a battle between those two those two principles is, is NYCFC good enough that they're kind of underachievement still lets them win? I think they are. I think NYCFC ends up bringing the the victory here. It brings me no pleasure to report, but, um, you know, as, as you kind of alluded to earlier, they, they might not be the favorite of Nashville SC fans, but um, I think Portland has been that team that can go out and, and get a result on the given day. But I do think NYCFC just has so much more quality. Well, Apparently, our respective reputations are as uh, you are you are the stone cold analytics guy, the data guy, and apparently I'm Mister Feelings Ball, according yeah. to some folks here recently. I might dispute that notion, at least uh, the characterization of myself, <laughs> but I'm gonna give some evidence to the folks who accuse me of that and go Feelings Ball with my pick. Portland at home gets the win. Uh, the numbers will tell you what Tim has told you, which is that NYCFC underperformed relative to. Um, it's it's metrics basically all the season, and, and they've started to come around and play some really strong soccer. But Portland's at home. Portland's been here. NYCFC has not. And I think the Timbers get the win. I think it's tight. I think it's an ugly game, as most of these cup matches are, uh, cup finals are. And I think it's 2-1 Portland, and I think they score the winner in the 86th minute. There you go. Well, Here's a, a fun fact for you that I was blown away when I heard this week. How old do you think Valentin Mariano Jose Castellanos Jimenez, a.k.a. Tati Castellanos, is? Because if you told me he was 29, I would have said, yeah, that sounds about right. He's 23 years old. If you think If you think that he goes out and scores two goals and New York City FC still loses um, after he's so angry after missing the, the Philadelphia game and his team getting through without him, Okay, that's one thing. But I think this is a dude who is hungry for more mm-hmm. and and kind of hungry to uh, dispel the notion that he's a big part of why his team underachieved early in the year. I, I just can't pick against Tati at this point. Also, he has a ridiculous number of names. I was Googling him as you were talking. I was like, oh, God, I got, I got a lot to say here. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're single-handedly extending the length of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> but look, my opinion of Tati on the field and my opinion of Tati's yeah. maturity oh, yeah. on the field are two very different things. I, I would say... He has the um, the talent and, and seasoned play of a 29-year-old and the maturity of a 23-year-old, so I'd put him yeah. at 26. Uh, <laughs> but I certainly could see him coming in. He will be fresh. Uh, not that you know anybody should be suffering after a week yeah. off anyway, but he's had a couple. And uh, 
I, look, I think he scores New York City's goal. And my my Portland pick over NYCFC, they're, they're shades of gray or shades well, of blue. Yeah. It's, it's going to be close. Yeah. One other thing to note is if there's a Rodrigo legal situation and they need to put somebody into net, just ask Dax McCarty how strong Tati Castellanos' hands are. He'll be able to step into net <laughs> and stop a bunch of shots. He does have first-hand experience, <laughs> and uh, his neck bore the brunt, I believe, of that of that uh, experience. Uh, before we get out of here and hit our final whistle, there was big news in Major League Soccer on Monday. A reserve league has been launched, and it's going to start next year. We knew that this was going to happen, but we learned a lot more about the league. It'll be called MLS Next Pro. It'll be the third tier of American soccer, so on par with USL League One and with NISA. 21 teams are going to participate, 20 reserve teams of MLS clubs, plus Rochester, owned by one Jamie Vardy. Uh, no Nashville, importantly. They will join in 2023 in the second year of this league. There are eight MLS clubs uh, that will join, and that includes Charlotte, that will join in that second year and not participate in the first. Uh, it's intended, Tim, to be a bridge between these mm-hmm. MLS Next Academies and Major League Soccer's top tier. Your initial impressions as you learned more about this league, what jumped out to you? Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge benefit for some clubs. And and Nashville is one of those, I think, uh, in the longer term, obviously, since they aren't participating in the first year. But Nashville is one of those clubs that's going to want a bridge between its academy and the first team. Uh, If you ask Philadelphia how useful it is to them, they're going to say, we've got 17-year-olds starting in the Eastern Conference semi or in the Eastern Conference final, excuse me. We probably don't necessarily need like essentially a U23 style of of competition. But I think for American soccer, it's good. The the more um, breadth of options that there are, the more potential pathways there are for players, the better. Um, It'll be interesting to see how much of this ends up being college draft picks mixed with a few academy guys mixed with whatever. Um, I think that in the long term, it's going to help uh, American soccer more than it might necessarily help MLS specifically. But that's that's from my perspective, not a problem at all. No, same, Uh, same. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it will not be helping Nashville in year one. In your opinion, why do you think Nashville chose not to to participate in that first year? Yeah, a big part of it is just that Nashville Academy is so nascent that they're isn't going to be talent to promote to a, a professional side from the Academy. And at that point, you're just kind of trying to find bodies to fill a roster and they don't really feel the need to do that. It's an unnecessary expense, both roster wise and in terms of administrative travel, all those sorts of things. It's not something that's going to help them um, from a first team perspective, which is mm-hmm. obviously the core business of the Nashville SC business is the first team. It's not a, an expense that is going to yield much return on that in the first year, once their academy is a little bit more built out, once Nashville SC has a year in its own facility to kind of see where the finances and where the kind of gaps in the schedule are going to be that they want to maybe fill that turf a little bit, we'll see what happens there. But it makes more sense once you're a little bit more established. I think it is a really promising outlet for this team to cultivate talent once those academies are further along. And I was not mm-hmm. surprised to read today that Nashville would not participate until that second year. And there's advantages to that too, in addition to the talent pipeline, you know, letting this league kind of get its sea legs a little bit and, and figure mm-hmm. out what it's going to be and how it's going to operate without worrying about that headache. The same year you're opening a new stadium, you're opening the season on the road from February through May. I think there, there are some advantages certainly to sitting it out, to watching and to letting that talent flow a little more naturally into that pipeline. Um, what are, do you think the advantages will be for clubs now who are moving their 
the USL sides, right? The reserve sides, many of them played in League One. They played in um, in the USL Championship. Moving mm-hmm. those teams over, as everyone will by that year too, um, does it does it offer you know just a little more targeted development for guys yeah. as opposed to maybe some of these reserve teams? New York Red Bulls too were always competitive, always yeah. competitive. But for every one of those, you had you know Portland Timbers too. LA struggled many years. Las Vegas Lights were LAFC's reserve team. Yeah. Nashville fans know that, that when you played a Loudon United, you weren't quite as amped up for that because <laughs> mm-hmm. you're playing 16-year-olds and you had sometimes 30-year-old career veterans on your team. So is it just more of a tailored experience for those guys? Yeah, yeah. shout out to my to my GIF from the uh, 2019 Nashville Loudon game of, of Justin Davis sizing up 16-year-old Moses Nyman, <laughs> who's obviously now playing for DC United. Just a dude who's literally twice his age and almost twice his mass. Uh, very funny. But yeah, I think that 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 is the big thing is, is um, USL wants its teams to be playing for a championship. Uh, MLS reserve teams goal is to be playing for development. And so kind of doing a, a, a split. Um, I don't think it's a messy divorce from USL, but mm. it, it is a, it is a divorce of a sort and it allows teams to be on the same page within the same league. And that was something that USL didn't necessarily like. I personally thought it was actually better for development to say, okay, this week you're playing against a bunch of your fellow guys who are kind of academy kids who are trying to develop and, and whatever happens next week, you're going to be playing a bunch of grown men and you're going to kind of learn some hard lessons that way. I think it's better for development to have that happen. But at the end of the day, I do think when everybody's on the same page and saying, okay, uh, you know, if you're playing New York Red Bulls two this week, you aren't playing uh, you know, a handful of first teamers because they're trying to squeeze into the playoffs to get a couple more games. Whereas the team that played them last week was playing a bunch of 15 year olds. It, it makes for a more consistent league experience to have set a, a league say we are about development and allow USL to say we are about being a second division league or in USL one, a third division league without being kind of split between teams that want to exist on their own merits and teams that want to exist to service their first teams. So what I'm hearing from you is this is not necessarily a damaging or very damaging blow to the USL either. It allows them to Mm-mm. further. Define no, I think, I think, I think it's, it's, it is more positive for USL than it is for MLS. Honestly, I don't think MLS would tell you that, hmm. but I think it's, it, it is better for USL to get teams that don't want to win USL out of their league than it is for MLS to say, okay, now our guys don't get to play a, a variety of, of different types of games and kind of learn how to, deal with tough lessons when you're playing against dudes who are trying to put, you know, food on their family's tables, kind of the old tropes about, about developmental leagues versus playing against grown men. One thing that we didn't discuss with John, but could have gone into and triggered a rant from both of us. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure you, you would really identify with this as well was, was the challenge of, of playing and prepping for those matches against the USL reserve squads, mm-hmm. the MLS reserve squads in USL. When you had a New York Red Bulls two or Bethlehem Steel was notorious for, for this and they became Philadelphia Union two after Nashville left the league. There were forty or fifty guys who could potentially yeah. get into a match. And those roster boards were massive. Good luck predicting the lineup because again they're yeah. you know they're not playing to, to necessarily tactically outsmart you. They're playing to give guys minutes and oh boy. Uh, prepping for those matches was a bear. You you have two of those in a week and your work week was shot. You'd spend yeah. all weeks putting roster boards together. The three to one, right. I would, even, the, even, said, the, even the local experts, even the local experts, I would say, okay, if you, if you have a projected lineup, let me know. They're like, I literally don't, I could not tell you five <laughs> people who are definitely going to be on the roster versus with the senior team this week. And I was like, I'll guess. All right. It was rough. It was rough. Yeah. So, so anybody who's, who's broadcasting, you know, full-time at MLS, uh, 
next pro, get used to that, but dive into it because it's going to be a great way to unearth talent, to study it, and to challenge those players as they rise up from academies. And looking forward to Nashville SC being a part of that in 2023. All right. Final whistle, Tim. What content are you jumping into this offseason? Yeah, for me, it's the North American Soccer Guide. It's it, We are very late to <laughs> recommend the 2021 edition of this annual, um, but it's, it's a priceless resource every year. It's like a media guide um, for those of us who follow college sports very closely. It's like a media guide, but it's for every league that is in this country. Um, from a professional or high-level amateur uh, type of situation, you will get so much information about, you know, records, about, um, you know, what the championships have been historically. It's, it's an incredible resource, and it's something that, um, you know, those who are, like, sports nerds will really like it. And I uh, proudly call myself one of those, too. So uh, check it out, the North American Soccer Guide. Sports nerds listening to our show? Yeah. What? No. Only like 95% of you uh, said affectionately. Uh, all right, so I will take your line and, and recommend the NCAA College Cup. I know you've been all in on re- recommending college soccer. I'm in lockstep with you, by the way. It's it's a great game and um, a great way to see some future talent coming up. Um, first, it's, FS- a, it's a good game. I, I love it to death, but it's a good game. I wouldn't say great. It's game. messy. It's a little <laughs> messy. Uh, another one, by the way, that's tough to prepare for is you're broadcasting it because Unlimited substitutions mean mm-hmm. you got to be ready for the you know the twentieth player off the you know off the bench ninth player off the bench twentieth player on the roster to get in and get some minutes. Uh, but NCAA College Cup is December tenth and twelfth. Clemson Notre Dame in one semifinal, Georgetown and Washington in the other. And as we speak uh, and record this, Florida State and BYU are going at it in the women's final. Your Michigan Wolverines, by the way, uh, beat my Tennessee Volunteers in the oh, uh, I hate to see it. Oh, yeah. my uh, Sorry, my actual content recommendation, the college football playoff. Shout out to all of our Tennessee fans who have to not only watch Georgia and Alabama play in it, but get to hear me crow about Michigan finally making it. Screw it, man. Hail to the victors. I'm all yes. about it right now. Yes. I'll, I mean, I'm, I'm, all, I'm on Team Cincinnati, really, but... Let's be honest. I mean, probably not going to happen for the Bearcats. As much respect as I have for what Luke Fickle has done. Hail to the freaking victors, please. Yes. Tired of Bama. My mom's a Georgia graduate, by the way, so I would love it for her sake. But she has worn orange to games for for years now because her three kids went to UT and she knew she had to get along. So, uh, yeah. Go Blue. Yes. It would be amazing. If they want, hey, yeah, I've never heard every single variation on those puns in my life. Uh, they're corny, I know they're corny. <laughs> All right, moving on from unoriginal humor uh, to once again thank Moon Taxi for the music at the beginning of the end of the show. We encourage you to hop on Apple Podcasts, uh, rate the show, give us some reviews. I think one of you called us a perfectly weighted through ball. That's great. That's better. Can you come write for us? Because that's better than we can. Better than I can put together, at least. That was strong. Uh, Subscribe to the show, and you'll get it right to your inbox 5 a.m. every Tuesday, as well as bonus episodes as they go live. Tell a friend about us. And, uh, you know, we're going to go deep, as we've discussed, on hashtag Hot Tim Winter and really explain the MLS offseason and walk you guys through every step. And so if you're looking to to evangelize a little bit uh, the Nashville SC cause to to fans who aren't as familiar with uh, with MLS and the intricacies of everything that goes on in the offseason, we can be a safe place for them to turn. So feel free to, to tell your friends. Um, thanks to the 440 Sports Network for giving us microphones and a platform to discuss the beautiful game. Tim, 
any final thoughts as we get ready for MLS Cup and a busy, busy offseason? Yeah, no, the main thing is just um, I know every single podcast says it, the rate, review, subscribe line, but it is it is so important to us if you guys uh, will actually type something into the box or I guess you type like this. Only Wes can see me acting out these things, but it really is so, so important to help us get out there and help not only spread the word of our podcast, but spread the word of, of Nashville SC is a is a, a real big time MLS club that that maybe is deserving of uh, some more national attention too. When people see how how many uh, ear balls it draws, as I like to say, ear balls. Yes, ear balls. Hmm. Like oh, eyeballs, special... but they're your ears. No, I, I I get it. I get it. It's a little visceral to hear. Um, thirty one of you, by the way, out of thirty two. Thanks to you guys for the five star ratings. The one star rating. Braden, really? Come on, man. We're on your network. <laughs> must, have been, must have been my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> Tough crowd. Tough crowd. All right, guys. We will see you next week.